China's gone astray. It's the horror of the age. Okay, is this working now? Oh, hang on. Yeah, I think it is. Good. Right. <clears throat> hey, if you're out there, welcome. I expect you're here because you're curious. And, I mean, I'm not expecting a massive response to this. But if you're listening, I really do appreciate it. I think. The simple truth is... I don't really know how to start this. I've thought about it a lot, but about how people are going to react to it. And it was almost enough to make me forget about it all. You know, pretend I never found any of it. But the truth is, I have to tell someone, because I can't deal with this on my own. I also can't tell anyone I know, because... Well, yeah, once I've explained to you all about what this is, you'll understand why that isn't an option. The way I see it, I reckon there are three ways this is going to be taken. The first way is that this is a piece of fiction. Maybe a bit unbelievable, but, you know, entertaining nevertheless. The second is that it's all utter bollocks and that I should give up while I'm ahead. But it's the third way that concerns me the most. That I'm crazy and I probably should seek professional help. And if I'm honest, the more I look into this, the more I wonder if the third option, you know, is that the right one? So to that end, I've already decided I'm not going to use my real name. If this gets any traction, the last thing I need is a bunch of weirdos turning up on my doorstep. And yes, I am totally aware of how hypocritical it's going to sound once I begin explaining what I've discovered. But I'm not going to go there. I have a life. A job, a family, you know, all the everyday things regular people have. And I need to keep it as separate as I can from all of this, well, whatever it is. So, for the purposes of this podcast, my name is Kay. The letter. That's it. I'm what some people might like to call an exennial, I suppose. And, you know, I'm prone to a bit of anxiety, but, you know, who isn't these days? But otherwise, I consider myself pretty mentally sound. I don't hear voices. I don't think the earth is flat. I think vaccines are a wonderful invention. And I don't believe that the world is run by evil space lizards. In many ways, I lead a spectacularly boring life of little consequence. If I died tomorrow, my friends and my family might be sad. But in the grand scheme of things, not much would change. So the purpose of this podcast is simple. I can't share this with the people around me because of everything I've already told you, but I also can't work through it on my own. And so I'm hoping that maybe someone out there in the great wide world knows at least something about what I found. I'm not an expert at, well, anything. So don't get your hopes up. You know, I'm using a supermarket special laptop and a microphone I got in a Black Friday sale on the site that shall remain nameless. And so, you know, don't expect audio wizardry or anything like that. I just want to try and find out what's going on, you know? Anyway, that's enough waffle. I should probably just get right into it. 
So, as I said, I'm a pretty boring person, and due to that, I really like garage sales. Yep, I know, that is not what you want to hear about, but please, bear with me. A few years ago, I got into auctions. Nothing fancy, so no Sotheby's, you know, nothing like that. Just popping along to foreclosures and estate sales, that kind of thing. More recently, I started looking into when they sell off old self-storage lockups. You know, like those guys on TV who buy the contents when the owners haven't paid their fee for however many years the contract says, and they can't get a hold of the owner or anyone related to them, so they're now going to auction off the whole lot, sight unseen. And yes, I am aware that some people might view me as a bit of a vulture preying on other people's misfortunes, but it's all just going to rot anyway. And nine times out of ten, there's nothing there other than stacks of old newspapers and broken furniture. And nine times out of ten, you lose money on these things. But then again, I don't do this because I think I'm going to get rich or anything. I do it because I'm curious. I just want to see what's in there, you know? If there's anything of value amongst the crap, then, you know, great. But I don't really do it for that. I mostly do it for the rush of discovery, for the mystery of it all. Ever since I was a kid, I've always dreamed of finding a magical book or or an artefact or whatever. And I guess in a weird way, doing this scratches that itch. I mean, I never thought it would actually, you know, happen, though. So, anyway... I logged onto the auction site to find out that I'd won one of the lockups I'd been bidding on. Most of these auctions are online, and you can even find them on eBay if you're curious, and I bid on a couple of things. I tend to put my highest bid in at around 50 quid, so nothing huge, and this one was no different. I'm not going to go into details of how I got to the place, etc. It was all standard stuff, nothing strange, no weird meetings, no anything like that. The important thing is what I found in that lockup. So here we go. The lockup itself was unremarkable. It was just an old garage covered in graffiti. By this point, the high at winning the auction had subsided a bit and the dread was kicking in. Looking at the place, I was a bit worried I'd just bought 50 quid's worth of mouldy mattresses and rusted out bits of car engines. And that feeling didn't go away when I went inside. Everything just look like junk. Old tools, broken toys, bits of old bed frames alongside loads of boxes, still with that old brown plasticky packing tape. You know, you know the stuff. It must have been there for a while because the tape had cracked and gone brittle and when I looked more closely at them the boxes were those old variety boxes of crisps you used to get when I was a kid. You know, so nothing fancy. Although I did think it was weird that I didn't recognise the brand name on the box. Wheelers. Kind of like walkers. Same design I remember from the early 90s, but a different name. I remember thinking it must have been a knockoff brand from Quicksave or something, you know, like Aldi does now. And before you switch off in disgust at how much I'm padding this out, why the hell is she talking about bloody crisps? It's because this is all relevant. At least, I think it is. I opened one of the boxes and inside were loads of old newspapers. I won't lie, my stomach did that sinky thing at that. The dates on them were from early 1988, so they were old, but not old-old, if you get what I mean. I mean, no one is going to be interested in old copies of The Sun from the late 80s. 
And it's also important to note that I didn't read any of the headlines at that point. You know, that came later. And that's also where this podcast comes in. Disappointed, I went to the next box. At first, I didn't know what I was looking at. Inside were a load of those cardboard Volscat folders. You, you know the type, the ones with the flaps that we all used at school. And inside those were big sheaves of yellowed paper. It didn't take me long to work out that they were letters. They were from all kinds of different people. Some were typed up, others were handwritten, and they were all addressed to the same place. The Museum of the Missing, Whitson Street, Bristol. Now, I'm not familiar with Bristol, but I did look on Google Maps, and as far as I can tell, this is a real street near St James's Park and the bus station. I also googled this Museum of the Missing and couldn't find any mention of it, but at that point that didn't seem all that strange as everything was so old and, you know, places change, so I guessed it had to be a long-forgotten exhibition that had just closed down at some point. But I do remember thinking it's a weird name, though. The Museum of the Missing. I mean, the missing what? Objects? Lost and found? Music? Artwork? People? The folders all had place names written on them, and not just from the UK. There were ones labelled New York and Sydney and Paris, and there was even one for Bombay, which proves how old they were, because Bombay was officially renamed Mumbai in 1995. I was beginning to think it was a bit odd that a bunch of correspondents for an old museum in Bristol had turned up in a derelict garage the other side of the country, but, you know, people are strange and they do strange things. And given I'd bought this lot, who was I to judge? So I kept on digging into the box, hoping to find clues as to what it was all about. Under the folders were what looked like a pamphlet. You know, like those glossy little booklets you get from museums and art galleries. Places like that. It was one of those, but a bit yellowed. But otherwise, other than that, still in pretty good nick. On the front was a simple statement. The Museum of the Missing. Remembering those we lost on that fateful day, 29th of February, 1988. For the record, I was six in 1988 and my first thought was, oh God, what happened and why don't I remember it? I thought it must have been a local thing. But if that was the case, then why were there folders labelled from all around the world? Feeling a bit baffled, I opened the booklet to see if I could glean any more information. And this is what it says. The day of the 29th of February 1988 will forever be etched on our hearts. No one will ever forget the tragedy of that day and the lives that were lost. From every corner of the planet and of all races, genders and ages, three and a half million people vanished without a trace. No one knows where they went, but that doesn't mean we should forget them. Today we honour their memories through stories told by the people who knew them best their loved ones. You come a bit of a scar. And then at the bottom of the page, exhibition opens 29th of February 1992. Now, my first thought was that this must be some kind of unfinished project, like a novel someone never finished, or a, a really morbid piece of performance art, or I don't know, a university project of some kind. You know, a thought experiment. But there were no authors mentioned, nothing to indicate who'd written it. Just this booklet and folder after folder of letters. 
I read a few there and then, and after a while I, I began to feel a little bit sick. Because every single one was someone talking about how, on the 29th of February 1988, they lost a friend or a family member to some kind of a disaster. Except none of this happened. Like I said, I was six in 1988, and even if that meant I was too young to remember it actually happening, the repercussions of such an event would have scarred generations to come. According to the literature I found, three and a half million people allegedly vanished into thin air, never to be seen again. And according to these letters, they never found out why. Now can you see why I'm struggling with it? I... I'm still very open to this being a sick joke. A bunch of university students making shit up, or, or maybe a shelf project for a book or a movie. I don't know, but if anyone out there knows anything about that and can tell me what happened, what it was for, or, or even just to laugh at me for ever thinking this might be real, then please drop me a line. I've added contact details to the show notes. The email is museummissing, which is all one word, small letters, at gmail.com and I've set up a Twitter account at Museum Missing. I would most definitely sleep better knowing that this was a hoax or, or an art project or whatever because if it isn't I, I don't know how to finish that sentence. All I can think of doing is to read some of these letters to you in the hopes that someone out there might be able to shed some light on all of this. Obviously, I'm not going to read all of them here and now, and that would take months. But as I go through this lot, I'll pick out ones I think might be useful, I suppose, and see if we can piece together what all of this is and what might actually have happened. So, to that end, this is the first letter I actually read. I'm not saying it's the most important or interesting one, but bear with me. It's dated the 14th of February 1990, so just before the second anniversary of the disaster. It's from a man called Gavin Treadle, who was visiting his in-laws in Boscastle in Cornwall with his then-wife, Stella, who allegedly disappeared from her own birthday lunch. Okay, so here goes. My darling Stella, not a day goes by when I don't think about you and about the life we might have had. I still hope that one day you'll walk in through our front door and be reunited with me, but as each day slips by, that hope leeches away a little bit more. I miss you. On that fateful day, it had been raining all morning. Too cold for a picnic, which I know is what you really wanted, but there was that new tea shop down in the harbour, what the one that your parents really wanted to take you to, so we went there instead. By the time we arrived, the rain had stopped and some watery sunlight had started to filter through the grey sky. I thought it was a good omen, that maybe the day would brighten and we might be able to go to the shore and go looking for crabs in the rock pools. It sounds silly now. We were grown-ups, for God's sake, but you used to speak so fondly of doing just that as a child growing up, and I thought it might have been a nice surprise. We all ordered a cream tea. Your mum told me off for putting the clotted cream on first. Said that's how they did it in Devon, not here. She seemed quite offended, which you found funny, and then you put your cream on first in solidarity, despite knowing better. There was no warning. 
that's what I can't get my head around. Given what happened, you might have thought that the birds might have fallen silent or that the air pressure might have changed, but there was nothing like that. When it first started, none of us knew what it was. That deep, bubbling sensation in my stomach had me wondering if maybe the cream had been off and we'd all been poisoned. I even remember thinking that I'd better make a dash for the loo. But before I could do that, the sound came. It was almost too deep to hear, so loud it could only be felt. My ears rang and my brain throbbed as it built to an appalling crescendo. I closed my eyes because I genuinely worried they might burst if I didn't. Then came that awful sense of crushing pressure as the sound rolled over us. I've never stood in the path of a hurricane, but I can only imagine that is what it might feel like. It was so enormous, so powerful, so incredibly overwhelming that I genuinely thought that this was it. This was the apocalypse. The sound sent by God to wipe the earth clean of us. Then, as quickly as it began, it ended. It took me a while to gather my wits. Everyone had been knocked to the floor, me included. Children were crying and adults groaning, their faces bloody, their bodies shaking. There was a shriek from the direction of the kitchen. I later learned that the cook had fallen on top of the lit stove, badly burning himself in the process. I don't know if he survived his injuries. I felt a damp warmth trickling from my ears, my nose, the corners of my eyes. Blood from whatever concussive force had assailed us. I still couldn't process what I was experiencing as I grabbed fistfuls of paper napkins and held them to my face. All around me, people were picking themselves up, crying, asking each other what was that, in frightened tones. My first thought was a nuclear explosion, that the Russians had finally snapped and the Cold War had turned hot. My stomach tied itself up in knots at that, and that was when I looked for you and realised you weren't there. You were nowhere. By this point, people were starting to panic. The blood and the pain and the confusion whipped them up into a frenzy. No one understood what had just transpired. Some had come to the same conclusion I had, that we were now at war. Others thought it was something more natural, like a freak weather event. Some thought it was a punishment sent by God, and fell to their knees to beg for forgiveness. Through all of this, I frantically searched for you, calling your name, but you never answered. The door to the cafe was closed, but I still tumbled towards it just in case you'd wandered out in shock. As I pulled on the door, a little bell rang. A little bell I don't remember being there before. Outside it was raining again, falling in sheets around me, drumming heavily onto the paving stones. A couple of people were out in it, finding their feet after the sonic assault, soaked to the skin, looking shaky and confused. None of them were you. I still ran to them, asked if they'd seen you, seen a woman of average height with a brown hair cut into a bob, wearing jeans and a red gingham check shirt, but they simply stared blankly at me. It was like they couldn't comprehend anything I was saying. I ran on, 
down towards the beach where once calm waves were now pounding against the cliffs, and my heart leapt into my throat as I envisioned you standing at their apex, arms outstretched, ready to be swept away by the unforgiving sea. But you weren't there. You weren't anywhere. You were gone. We didn't stop searching for you. Even when the news came out that other people had also disappeared in that moment. That the extreme weather event was global. No continent had escaped. Every nation was in mourning for its missing loved ones. I hoped you were an anomaly. That you hadn't disappeared like the other lost, but had just wandered off. Confused and unable to remember who you were, or where you were. And if I'm honest, I still hope this is the case. That one day you will walk through our front door and we can be together once again. But I also have to face facts. The simplest being that no one has returned. Not yet, anyway. But I believe you will. I have to. And so, until that day comes, I want to say one last thing. I love you, Stella Treadle. And I always will. So, that's it. They're all like this. I haven't read all of them, of course. I mean, there are loads and some of them are, are intense. Upsetting. Horrifying. All of them mention this event or the sound. But I don't know what that means. Not yet. I'm hoping some of the files contain some scientific data, or at least some kind of theory as to what actually happened, but it may take me some time to plough through all of them, and, you know, not just because there are lots of them. After reading a couple, I just feel so exhausted, like they're draining me, feeling off me somehow, even though I know that's complete nonsense. I suppose one person can only take in so much fear and misery all at once. Due to this... I'll probably be posting about once a week. Yeah, I, I figure I can keep up with that. And and remember, if you know anything about this, you know, if you're Gavin Dreedle, please contact me on the email I mentioned earlier, museummissing at gmail.com or on the Twitter account at museummissing. Because I, I just can't believe that three and a half million people disappeared after a worldwide event. An event that no one remembers. Thanks for listening. Kay. Museum of the Missing is written, performed and produced by Claire Waller. The title song, Museum of the Missing, was written by David Rozell and is performed by David Rozell and Claire Rozell. It is used with permission. If you're enjoying the story, please rate, review and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Contact details and social media links are in the show notes. If you wish, you may also buy the podcast a coffee at Museum of the Missing. Thank you for listening. It's the horror of the age